Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast When you call in and dopey put all your life on blast And you call dopey in podcast. and talk about your past Because your life was curious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place where addicts are treated with compassion and connection and not control. They have decades of experience in treating addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, surfing, equine therapy, and spiritual sweat lodge. They have it all. They also make sure that if you're kicking heroin or benzos, coke or alcohol, whatever you're kicking, that your detox is going to be as comfortable as possible, which is crucial for detox. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I strongly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our old friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict helping another addict to date safely. So here's the reality. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to fucking date. So where are you supposed to look? Kettle of fish? Clean and sober love is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if your own shit is together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or Google Play. And by the way, it's free. And also, it's totally revamped. New login, new sign-up, new profile, fucking new chat features. This is the new version of Clean and Sober Love. If you're lonely in COVID and want to meet a beautiful addict, check out Clean and Sober Love, C-A-S-L. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by BetterHelp.com. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment with a professional counselor that you can message anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's way more affordable than traditional counseling, and financial aid is available. 
Their counselors are specialized in treating depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and of course, everything that you share will obviously be confidential. If you sign up now, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. Go to betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. Ray said it's doing him a lot of good. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by listeners like you in the dopey nation through the power and the passion and the professionalism of dopey Patreon. We have been cranking out Dopey Mini Patreon episodes. Last week, here, Dopey Nation mega fan Dan Ali Sr. talk about getting out of his alcoholic past and cope with six children in recovery. Now, that's a story. Dopey Patreon, kick down a few bucks, help me out, help me get out of my job. I just want to do Dopey. Dopey Patreon, fucking www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Kick a few bucks down, make it happy, joyous, and free. Also, there is crazy, beautiful merchandise offered to you at dopeypodcast.com in the store. It is all made by SRO Prince, which is a company made up of recovering heroin addicts, and we have really cool stuff right now. We got good so bad clothes. We got the fucking new long sleeves. There's tank tops. There's the new Dopey coffee mug. Go to dopeypodcast.com and check the store. If you want stickers, you should Venmo me. I have a few snapbacks. Venmo me. New holographic stickers are coming in. I'm very excited. Enough with the ads. It's a lot of ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm thrilled to pieces to have my dear friend Aurora back on the show. Welcome back. Hi. Nice to be here. Hi, Dopey Nation. There you go. What up? There you go. There's, your, there's your high Dopey Nation that I love. Now, yeah. now, we're coming up on, uh, you and I are coming up on five years clean, um, which means, and sober, which means we're coming up on five years of Dopey. Now, could you have ever... Pro- you remember when we started this thing? Yeah, I do. I've been thinking about... I might have a, a gift idea for you for your five-year uh, anniversary. What is it going to be? Uh, it's a surprise, but I think I might send you something in the mail, so send me your address. You're, what are you going to send me? What do you think it's going to be? A treat. A treat. Is it going to be a book? No, it's not a book. It's something fun. Is it bigger than a bread basket? Uh, no. Smaller. I've never even... I mean, where? what is a, be- a bread basket? How big is a bread basket? I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to start looking for one because fucking... I baked one loaf of sourdough, but I, I, I haven't gotten deep into it. Just, it feels like it's overwhelming. It's too much. So you're baking bread. You're fucking living it up in Los Angeles. Tell us about how you're I, doing I baked a chocolate cake from scratch for my boyfriend's birthday. I really wish we could hang out because I would love to cook with you. I'm like a fucking professional home cook at this point. I love cooking. I'm cooking a ton. You love cooking. I wish I could make you some great shit. 
I'm cooking the shit out of shit. Cooking the shit out of shit. I'm fucking, yeah. you know, I cooked myself lunch. I didn't have anything to eat. And, uh, and I look in the fridge and, like, I had bought Nora some roast beef. So I decide to make the Katz's cheesesteak at home, which is you take roast beef and you grill it with onions and peppers and you melt cheese on it. And that's the Katz's cheesesteak. And I made it on, a, on toasted whole wheat with barbecue sauce. Delicious. It was delicious. Totally delicious. Need some, need some hot peppers. I used red peppers. Good. All and right. I, you know, I'm growing fucking hot peppers in the garden. That's the thing I'm bummed about is like, A, I want to grow a bunch of herbs and B, I want to be able to fucking grill, but I don't have outdoor space. And so, you know, I can't grill. But anyway. You can do it. You'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get your outdoor space together. The question is, are you prepared for Dopey Day? I just opened the uh, the tool and yeah, I'm ready. I just uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna think long and hard about you know what I want my selfie to be and I'm gonna I'm gonna participate. Well, what do you think about this idea? And Dopey Nation, if you don't know the idea, the idea is that on July 24th we will be celebrating Chris and remembering him and acknowledging his death and everybody who listens to the show will put the dopey logo over their eyes uh, in solidarity around addicts like I see it as like V for Vendetta did you ever see V for Vendetta I don't think so well, V for Vendetta is about a terror. Dude, you should watch V for Vendetta. It's really very poignant in this in this day and age. Okay. Will you watch it? Yes. Is it an assassin film? No, it's a movie about a terrorist uh, who takes down a fascist government be- on the heels of an international pandemic. Oh, cool. All right. I thought it was like Killing Zoe, like it was like an assassin film. I never saw Killing Zoe. V for Vendetta sounds like what we're actually living right now. Yeah, I mean, that's why you should watch it. It's, it's with Natalie Portman. It's a good movie. Um, but the point is for Dopey Day, I want to see how many people are going to do this thing. Yesterday, this dude from England sent me a filter, and it's pretty amazing, and, and, it, and it works really well. Did you try it, Aurora, yet? Yeah, it's cool. I love it. And I wanted to ask, so does Dopey Day replace Christmas? No, Dopey Day does not replace Christmas, but it's a good question. And I don't like the name Dopey Day. What do you think about that, Aurora? Well, I really like that Christmas. I know. What do you think if we call Dopey Day Christmas in July? I like that. But then actual Christmas is in August. Christmas is August 16th for Chris's birthday. Can we have Christmas for July and August is the question. Ah, uh, I see. I see. Okay. I thought, I, I thought you had Christmas on the day he died, but you had it on his birthday. Isn't actual Christmas Jesus' birthday? Correct. So that was the idea. Because Chris is a lot like Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think Christmas is going to be, it's going to be two months of Christmas. It's going to be called Dopey Day. The, the Dopey Day's, the alliteration is good. Dopey Day is okay. The Dopey Nation thinks I'm weak for not sticking to my guns on this Dopey Day title. What do you mean? Because they, they, I doubt Dopey Day. Everybody knows that I doubt the phrase Dopey Day, and they're mocking Dude, me. You, if you didn't doubt everything, you wouldn't be you. That is true. Anyway, do, the question I'm asking you is, do you think that there are secret celebrities who listen to Dopey? 
a la a Brad Pitt who might shock the world on Dopey Day, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see Brad Pitt, you see Robert Downey Jr. with the Dopey logo over their eyes on Dopey Day. Do you think that's possible? Definitely not. Do you think there's any <laughs> any potential mystery celebrity that's going to come out of the Dopey closet on Dopey Day? Maybe Lena Dunham, if you bug her enough. Fucking Lena Dunham. Know. Fucking Lena Dunham. She's not coming out of the fucking Dopey closet. Lena Dunham <laughs> is about to have the next Dopey beef, by the way. Oh, really? What? Oh, I've touched a nerve. Well, she said she wanted to do the show, and then she fucking backed out, and she's been gone. She's, ne- she's out of pocket, as we say. Mm-hmm. She's very, uh, she preserves herself, you know? That's her whole thing, self-preservation. What do you mean? You know, she, I, whatever I see her posting is about, like, you know, like, protecting your energy and, you know, making space for yourself and taking a fucking nap and being kind to yourself. I don't know. I wish I could be. I, I mean, mean I wish I could make more space for myself. I have no space for myself. Fucking I'm go, I mean, go, go. There's no napping in my life. I can't even watch TV. Oh, you poor thing. I'm sure you squeeze it in. I don't believe you. I, I, the only thing, the last thing I watched was... V- I am on... I am on episode 52 of Love Island. I am a slave to this fucking ridiculous show. It's been great. It's really been great during the pandemic. What is Love What is Love Island? Oh my god, it's a UK show and it airs 5 nights a week in the UK and they send like hot 20 somethings into a villa. And then every few days they send in other hot people to try to get them to like couple up with someone new. You win a 50 grand prize at the end. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, That's the kind of show I could only watch the way I eat a pint of chocolate, chocolate chip ice cream, which is alone. Exactly. Do you watch it with, do you watch it with Jeff or no? Yeah, I watch it with Jeff. He loves it. Um, you know, at first was like, hell no, am I watching this? Then it's like, can we, can, another episode? Another episode? Yeah, Hooked. that's the kind of show that I'd be embarrassed to watch with. That's the kind of show that I would watch with Todd. That's a me and Todd kind of yeah. show. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes, exactly. It's great. So Dopey Nation, if you're interested in Love Island, throw us an email. I'd love to hear your take. What are you guys watching in fucking quarantine i watch v for vendetta i watch like nothing anymore i don't watch anything i'm done mm-hmm. my tv i've been reading I, i've been reading pretty voraciously for like the last month when i i hadn't picked up a book in uh, you know months but now i'm reading a ton of fiction i'm just like i want to escape please i need to escape did you read anything good yeah i've read some great shit i read uh i read uh the Dutch House. I read Death in Her Hands. I read uh, The Glass Hotel. I read American Dirt. I'm reading The Margot Affair right now. Great, great books. Yeah, they've all been really good. All right, Smarty Pants, take it easy. And I'm not reading any. If I read like 25, 30 pages and I don't like a book, I'm like moving on. I'm not wasting time reading books I don't like. I'm just reading drug memoir after drug memoir for the future guests of Dopey. That's good, too. I would like to read some memoirs. Why don't you recommend some, like, classic rock and roll drug memoirs for me? All right. Uh, Best drug memoir. I mean, the Keith Richards book is great, My Life. I'd read that. 
Okay. It's very long. His audio book, the best fucking drug memoir that isn't a drug memoir is the Miles Davis autobiography. Mm, Did you ever read that? No. I would totally recommend the Miles Davis autobiography, and I would totally recommend to listening to it on audiobook because it's like an actor who like plays Miles who reads it. It's fucking insanely good. That's a good idea. I might go to Yosemite in a couple weeks, and it's like a five, five-and-a-half-hour drive, so that would be good on, in the car. Dude, you guys should listen to the Miles Davis audiobook in the car. I... I you will be happy you did because it's also just like about you know America in the twentieth century. It's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so good. I, I think I talked about it last summer. I think I was listening to it last summer. So, Dopey Nation, if you never listened to it, I totally recommend listening to it. Now, last week uh, we had Gregory from Top Chef, and I didn't want to have two restaurant people in a row, but fuck it, we're gonna have two restaurant people in a row. And this dude on this week is this guy named Michael Chernow, and he's like a New York City uh, restaurateur, entrepreneur, chef. Aurora, you heard of him before I sent you this interview, right? Oh, God, yeah. And I, you know, I've eaten at the meatball shop in Seymour's, and I, I know people who have ties to them, and they made a TV show. I know people that worked on that. Like, yeah. So here we go. Here's Michael Chernow. So this is a treat. There's this guy that I heard of, and I'm going to say he's a legend of New York City. Is that fair to say? Are you a legend of New York City? I mean, it's a trick question, because if you say yes, then you're a dick. And if you say no, then you don't really believe in yourself. I I, you know what? I'd rather I I take the dictum. uh, I I take the, the, the legend credit. He is a legend of New York City. His name is Michael Chernow. You grew up in Manhattan. Yeah. He grew up in Manhattan. He went to LaGuardia High School. My sister went to LaGuardia High School. Um, and uh, he created, he, he's a, an addict and an alcoholic in recovery. He's an entrepreneur. He's a podcast host. He's a fucking drink designer, wellness guru, seafood maven. This dude does it all. Uh, Michael Cherno, welcome to Dopey. I am honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You've made it to the dregs. <laughs> well, well, welcome to welcome to the bottom. You know, I gotta just um, say something real quick. I was lying on the beach in Mexico. The first, honest to God truth, my wife and I took two uh, two day vacation, three day vacation. The first vacation we've had without our children ever. We this was like eight months ago. We flew to Tulum, Mexico, and the whole time I was on the beach. I was listening to This American Life tell the story of the Dopey Podcast, and that's how I learned about you guys. Right. It's a rough, rough show, right? That show is fucking rough episode. No, no joke had me crying, actually. Yeah. Yeah, they, they can pull the strings. It was a beautiful, it's a beautiful tribute, fucking terrible story. It was a big honor to be on that show, but obviously... You don't want to, you know, have to have an honor like that. You know what I mean? So, but, but I appreciate it. Um, and you grew up in Manhattan as I did. And I like that. I could tell as soon as I started talking to you that I would enjoy doing this. So, so I'm psyched for that. Um, and when I read about you, it said that you started, what did you do in LaGuardia? You did, I mean, your partner made a joke on something I saw that said you played the tuba. Did you really play the tuba? I did. I did. Do you still play? No, I don't. My, you know, I went to, I went to Wagner Junior High School. And um, my music teacher there 
thought it would be real funny to put the biggest instrument in the band on the smallest guy in the band. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's how it all, that's how it all started. And if you don't know, LaGuardia is like a very famous high school in New York City for uh, music and art. And um, most people that go to LaGuardia are really serious musicians. And just the way you're shrugging off your tuba career, I guess it wasn't that serious to you. You know, I, I, enjoy, I really actually enjoyed it. I, I, I got into the... It was pretty much for me, it was like the percussion section that I was in because I played jazz. So I was, I was next to the drum, the drummer. Um, and, uh, and I played in small bands, uh, throughout high school. So it was actually like kind of, it was a, it was a cool experience. I never thought that tuba was going to be my claim to fame. Um, but you know, I enjoyed it while it lasted. I don't think I've picked up a tuba since I graduated in, uh, Wow, well, you should. You know what I'm saying? The tuba wasn't your ticket out of the ghetto. You weren't going to ride that tuba. You know what I love? I love in New Orleans music when they use the tuba as the bass and like that second line music. Have you heard that stuff? Of course. Did you? Can you play that stuff? Can you play second line bass on tuba? I mean, Bob Stewart is one of the most renowned jazz tubists in the world. He has a tuba quartet. And so. He played a B-flat tuba like a trumpet, actually. Guy's amazing, and that was his whole shtick. And so we, you know, he taught us a lot of amazing things, but I, I just, I didn't take it seriously. You know, what, as, to be honest, you know, my, my drug and alcohol career started pretty much, uh, you know, when I walked through the doors of LaGuardia High School. <laughs> well, break it down for me, because, I mean, basically, you're talking, LaGuardia was like, Actors, musicians, people willing to like explore new frontiers. How did you wind up starting with uh, drugs and alcohol? Um, you know, well, I mean, if I if I think about it, like I my household was pretty fucked up, um, and I don't blame you know I don't blame my parents for my fucking shit, but like I had a really really rough childhood. My father was very very aggressive and abusive and miserable and. You know, and so for me, it was like I was escaping from as early as I can remember. I was I was escaping. I never wanted to sleep at home. I remember very clearly. That's why I think I was like born with this shit. Very clearly, I remember being probably three or four years old. I just have this very clear memory of my parents. So we lived in a small one bedroom apartment. There was a dining room alcove and my parents had a Murphy bed that they would take down. That was their room. And their Murphy and their, the dining room separated the living room from the kitchen, so you had to walk through the dining room to get into the kitchen. But when their Murphy bed was down, there was no way to get into the kitchen outside of crawl underneath their bed. So I remember as a young kid, I would like wake up in the middle of the night, crawl underneath their bed, go into the kitchen, grab a, 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 a you know half gallon of orange juice, and like suck the fucking orange juice as hard as I could out of that container. I remember doing it regularly, and it was like. It was something there uh, for me, you know, where I was like, I found some resolve in doing that at such a young age. And, uh, you know, I think I was just always looking to escape. And um, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have many means until I was probably 12 years old. Uh, One of my really good friends um, was also 12 years old. And she she somehow got her hands on weed and, uh, and, you know, and I, and I smoked weed for the first time when I was 12. Um, and then it just sort of 
went nuts after that. When I was 13, I went to LaGuardia, went to my first rave uh, at uh, the mm. Hammerstein Ballroom. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I just sort of really, by the time I was a freshman, toward, you know, by the, by the time of the end of my freshman year, I was full bore selling drugs to the whole school. Always entrepreneur, though. I got to just say that. Right. Like, you know, I was always entrepreneur. But like my, you know, all through high school, it was really sort of party drugs um, and not as much alcohol. Um, and then alcohol became a thing when I was like, probably like 16. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 15. So I... Wow. How did... The, how, first of all, what did you get out of drinking the orange juice? Was it just the sweetness, the yeah, sugar? Think, like, what was it? I think it? I was addicted to the sugar. I think, I think the sugar was, was, was... I was addicted to it, you know? Um, and, it, and, it, and it was like... It gave me... I just remember being so looking forward to drinking as much orange juice and apple juice as I could. Um, and I know that sounds... The juice. Yeah, man, I was all, it was all about the juice. And that sounds crazy, but it's, but it's real. Like, it's very real, you know, that, 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 uh, that I remember those, that, those things. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, it got really ugly in my house. I was, I was completely out of control from 12 years old on, there was no controlling me. My parents, I, w- I never slept at home. I always slept at friends' houses. I actually played hockey at, uh, at the Sky Rink down on 33rd Street when I was a kid. And so um, I would sleep at the rink. Um, I was just crazy. And, and my parents had no control over me. So my father and my relationship got even worse. It got very physical. The child services got involved. It got to a point where the police were coming to my house. Every time I would come home, my dad and I would get into some sort of a fight. The police would show up. And then finally, you know, basically what happened was child services got involved. They, my sister and I were sharing a bedroom. And we were early in our, you know, we were in our early teens, you know, like 13, 14. And child services says they can't share a room at this age. They have to, they have to be separate. Um, and so my father you know, said, hey, you're going to, you know, when the child services come, you're going to tell them that you sleep on the pullout couch in the living room. And I was like, fuck you. I'm not telling them that I sleep on the pullout couch in the living room. That's bullshit. I don't. I, I fucking share a bedroom with my sister. And, and that's why I don't sleep at home. You know, that was like my, like, big old fuck you. And then, uh, and then it just got to a point where child services literally were like, okay, we're going to put this kid in foster care because it just got ugly. And so, wow. yeah, and so I said to my mother, um... You know, I'm not going to foster care. I already make my own way. You guys are going to have to catch me. I'm out of here. And, you know, and, and interestingly enough, you know, I love my mom. I do love my mom. My mom was also a victim of abuse. And my mom had something called abused wife syndrome from my father's insanity. And so she was terrified to leave my father because she thought that he was going to, like, do something crazy. So she was stuck in a tough spot. I wanted her to take me out. I built up the deepest resentment. So when I got sober, you know, obviously when you get sober, all these, you know, like, just because you stop drinking and doing drugs doesn't mean that, like, all your fucking problems go away. As a matter of fact, like, they all begin to amplify and polarize. Every, prob- every problem that isn't the using, right. you know, shows up, basically. Yeah, so I, 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 for the first year of sobriety, I couldn't talk to my mom. Because I thought that she, you know, like when I started doing all the work, I was like, man, she really just fucking hung me out to dry. Um, but I come to realize that like she did the best she could. You know what I mean? Like I was crazy. 
And so any, sure. anyway, so I left at 15. I was out and I I always hung out with older kids. So I, I I'm you know, and I and I'm pretty good sort of hustler. So I, I, I connected with a bunch of these NYU kids and I ended up moving into Alumni Hall on 9th Street and 3rd Avenue, which is a NYU dorm. And 15 years old. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let's, let me analyze this for a second. You're 15. You're selling drugs. You know, you're, you're selling drugs to kids at LaGuardia. Then you meet some rich kid at NYU and you manage to get clientele at NYU as well. Yeah. And then they like put you up and you're like, I don't need to go home because I make all this money and you're 15 living at NYU, which is probably a fantasy of any kid in New York City. Um, but, of course, your father is a piece of shit, abusive guy and treating you like hell and you need to yeah. go. So, okay, I'm with you. So I, Well, well let, me, let me ask you this. Wait, before, I, mean, I, need to, I need to know stuff. What were you selling then? Uh, well, <laughs> I, everything. You know, I mean, I wasn't sell- like. I what wasn't was your thing? Heroin. So my big thing, which was which was pretty much the largest money generator for me, was I had always sold weed, right? I always sold weed, and then um, and and then acid and mushrooms, and um, and I had the. I mean, I had like the best way of selling it. I came up with the coolest way to sell it. Can I tell this story? Yeah, okay. this is what this is the okay, show. So this is it. When I was when I was. Uh, I was 14 years old, I guess, and there was a guy named Doc. I don't know if you know Doc, but Doc was this old hippie guy in the meadow in Central Park, and he sold acid and weed and all sorts of terrible, terrible product, like the lowest quality weed. Like, you never wanted to buy weed from him. However, he did sell great acid. And so... What did Doc look like? What did he look like, and what did the acid look like? Tall, skinny, long hair, definitely had some... Thing. Could could be HIV, white dude, you know, but like, you know, like you see those like atrophied, you know, guys that you're like, oh, something's definitely up, like pot belly, whatever. Anyway, okay. he had some shit going on that was, he was not a healthy man, but he was a really nice guy, wasn't a creep, like was like a really nice guy, just like an old hippie that like made his money through selling fucking drugs to kids and also, you know, like probably adults. But um, so he would sell me sheets of acid and I would take the acid and I this is back in the days when people still listen to CDs. And basically what I would do was I would take blank CDs and I would write like, you know, Led Zeppelin or, you know, the Rolling Stones or, you know, Nirvana on the blank CD. But there would just be empty blank CDs. I would take the back of the CD case off and there was always that like sheet of paper and and yes. on top of the sheet of paper was like the plastic piece that like snapped in and that's where you put the CD on. Yes. So I would take I would take like orders from people. I'd be like, "Oh, what do you want? Friday afternoon, I'm going to give everybody what they need when it came to acid." And so I would take uh, you know, if it was like 5 hits of acid, I would I would pay like 40 cents or whatever it was. I would buy like these cases of these blank CDs. I'd take 5 hits of acid, put it in the back of the thing, and then I'd hand it to the kid and be like, "Oh, here's your fucking you know, Led Zeppelin burner CD. Um, and that's how I was selling my acid. Um, the funniest thing about that is that I bought acid in the meadow from a different old hippie, a dude named George, okay, with black hair, long hair. And I would sell, I went to purchase and I would take my sheets every week. Me and my friend would go to 
the meadow, buy sheets of acid, take it back, and we'd put it in the back of the fucking you suit. Did? I mean, it's like this. It, yes, oh. we took it in the put it. That's where it was hidden because how could they ever know when you snap off the thing and you put yep. it there? What did the acid look like? What was? What did it look like? I don't like? remember. I mean, I do know. I, I remember very clearly that there was this black fly acid that I used to get. Um, that was okay. like a blue sheet. And it had black flies. Every little tab was a black fly. Um, I don't remember. I mean, and and I'll also say that like my memory is so shot from like me too. thirteen to I, I literally I love like reminiscing with old friends um, because they tell me what I did. You know what I mean? Like, yes. and, and and nobody like the truth is in today like today nobody fucking knows. Like no, everybody like looks at my life and and. Um, and they're like, oh, he's, you know, he's got a restaurant, he's married, he's got kids. And they don't assume that I'm sober. And it's not like anything that I hide, but I don't like run around screaming about it. But like when I, when I, when I walk down the street, and my wife, we've been together for a very long time. She's never seen me drink. She's never seen me high. We, and we've been together for 15 years. So, you know, she only knows this guy, which is like an like insane fitness, like work-focused like like nice person um <laughs> when we walk down the street in new york and i run into like an old friend that's not doing so well but they're like mikey <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, she's yeah, like yeah. uh who's that you know and i'm like babe you know my you know you know the deal uh, you know i'm i'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a i'm a i'm a changed man but you know my life before i met you was you know different and uh, and did you take a lot of acid when you were selling the acid, or were you mostly just entrepreneuring it up? Uh, I was definitely partaking. I wasn't like as much an acid head as I was an ecstasy head. Like I really loved ecstasy in those years, from like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. I took they, you know, they used to call me Mike E. <laughs> And um, yes, with extra e for extra ecstasy. Yes, so so you know, I took a lot of ecstasy. I mean, I was taking you know an enormous, an an obscene amount. I wanted to escape at all times, so I would take you know twelve pills over the course of twenty four hours. I was crazy. Um, So you know that 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 was those years, and uh, I did a lot of crazy shit. I mean, a lot of crazy shit. I got away with an enormous amount of, of stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and it was like, it, it didn't slow down at all, you know, but, but somehow, some way I was always street smart enough. And, and I always had this charm and, and also by the way, I always worked. So like I, even though I was selling drugs, I also was working in restaurants. So I got my first job in a restaurant right before my freshman year in high school at the Candle Cafe on 76th Street and 3rd Avenue. Why? Why, why did you work when you were selling drugs? What was, the, what was the allure of having a real job when you could make money just uh, dealing? I think it was this idea that I wanted to feel legit. I wanted to feel legitimate. And, and honestly, I was working in restaurants and, and also in nightclubs as I got a little older. I really loved it. I loved the people. I was also able to be like fucked up in my in, at, at work, and and I also, you know, by the time I was I was I, I linked up with, um, so the girl that I moved into alumni hall with, 
was also working at one of the hottest clubs in the city called Life when she was, you know, I think she was 19 or 20. On Bleecker Street. On Bleecker Street. And so I was yes. living in her dorm room. So I said to her, hey, get me a job at the club. And she's like, you're fucking 15. I can't get a job at the club. But one day I like went to meet her over there. And this guy, Steve Lewis, who is like a nightlife legend in New York, um, I, I, she, he was outside and I met her. She introduced me to him. And for whatever reason, I was able to like charm him up. And he like gave me a shot. So he was like, look, here's a stack of flyers. Go outside of, of, of chaos on Watch Street. And stand out there from 11 o'clock at night till 3 o'clock in the morning and hand people flyers to come over to life. And I'm going to you know, mark the flyers, and if people come, we'll talk more. And so I was hustling. I was, like, out in front of Watts. I was handing out flyers, getting people to come to life. And then finally, after a few months of that, I was like, give me a, give me a job in the club. He's like, dude, you're a fucking child. I was like, just give me a job at the club. So he, 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 when I turned 16... He actually gave me a job working in the nightclub as a bar back. Um, and at that time, I had already, I had also hustled because this is also when email was not a thing, right? There was no email. So every single nightclub promoter had mailing lists that they had to stuff in envelopes and actually mail in the mail to tell people to come to their parties. So I connected with all the club promoters and I said, let me do your, your, your mailing list. I'll stuff all the envelopes. Pay me 14 bucks an hour um, to do it. And so I had five promoters that I was doing it for every week. I took three of my friends. I, tr- I paid them seven bucks an hour to do the, the mailing list. I did one of them. I was making seven bucks an hour on them, 14 bucks an hour on myself. So I had this sort of like crazy hustle going on where I was, ma- I was like the mailing list kid working in the club. I just like, I always, for whatever reason, wanted to make and do shit. I've always thought entrepreneurially, and I think that that is sort of what describes who I'm. I'm like, I am, I am a, a true scrappy entrepreneur. I know it's crazy. I've opened up 16 restaurants in my career, and you know, from looking from the outside, that's like, oh, restaurateur. But I still feel like a New York City kid, just like trying to hustle, hustling. Um, no, I get it, I, and everything I've seen of you and about you, you know. You're a restaurateur, but you're an entrepreneur and you're a hustler. And like, you know, I am like an entrepreneur that doesn't make money. I'm like the worst kind of entrepreneur because like I'm obsessed with making stuff. Like I've always, shit, I just dropped something. I've always made stuff, but I've never been good at making money. Like I've never been good at that aspect. Uh, And I also like see incredible similarities between like me as an obsessive drug addict and me as an obsessive podcast maker or worker or whatever. Like, do you see parallels between your hustling entrepreneurship and your life as an alcoholic addict? Oh, a bazillion percent. Like, you know, I I was definitely, there was never a moment where I wanted to, you know, when the years were good, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and lie to everybody and tell you, like, I didn't enjoy the shit out of my time using for a number of years. Like, my teen years when I was getting fucked up and, you know, doing all, you know, like going to raves and going to parties and being in clubs as a young kid, like, I really enjoyed it. When it got really ugly was when I stopped when it became about alcohol and cocaine and then heroin. That's when it became, for me, that's when it just became really, really dark and ugly. Um, what was the shift like? Tell us, tell us about the shift in, like, partying to total, like, 
destitute, whatever. Well, you know, alcohol, when alcohol became like a real part of my story, um, I, I, I pretty much put away like the, the party drugs, like the acid and the mushrooms and the ecstasy and the special K. And, and even those days, crystal meth was like, you know, I, I mean, I was doing that in, in those days. Um, but I considered those to be like real sort of like designer drugs. Uh, when alcohol became a thing for me, it was probably when I was like 17 and, um, and you know, we were, I was drinking lots of 40s and, and, and doing coke. Uh, and I, it was far less about the party stuff. And I think, you know, I, if I really close my eyes and go back and think about like what that transition was like, it just it, it 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 was just a, it was like tying my shoes and you know putting on pants before leaving the house. It was just it, it wasn't like I was going to go and do this. It was like I did it. You know what I mean? It was like I feel like when I was when I was having fun with it, I, it was like I'm going to go to a party and do this thing. When I when I became a, a real like when I when it became more about the, the drinking and the blow. It was just a, it was just a prerequisite to my day. I just did it, you know. And I was working at night, and so I would stay up all night, and then go to work the next day on on no sleep. And um, I think that that cyclical place, you know, where you just end up get you know getting into trouble and the just bad shit happening. You lose your wallet, you lose your phone, you lose your fucking keys. Then you start carrying your keys out on your wrist and a rubber band so you don't fucking lose your keys because everything else you have in your pockets gets lost. And then, um, and then waking up next to like not amazing people, um, and just being like, Oh my God, how did this fucking happen? Um, you know, and then, and then, and then people telling you stories like the blacking out with the alcohol, um, like this shit just gets really ugly. You know, like when, when you're using drugs, you'd, it's rare that you're like blacking out, but like if you're drinking heavily and you and you and your blow runs out, you're still drinking. You tend to black out if you're an alcoholic, like I was, and most people you know are that are in the program understand that, and or just alcoholic understand that. And you know, like I have pictures of my 21st birthday party. Um, I was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in a huge loft with a bunch of other dudes. And, uh, and they brought out, and I do, I'm just still no recollection of this. They brought out a blow up doll. Um, and there was like 7,500 people in this loft. It was a huge loft. This is when Williamsburg was like, you know, gangs. And, um, pre bougie, pre bougie Williamsburg. Yeah, and it was when William, Williamsburg, yeah. and it was also in like a neighborhood in Williamsburg on Madras Street that was just like pretty rough. Anyway, lots of we had this huge loft, and, and there was lots of people there. They bring out this blow up doll, and I literally got naked, and I fucked the blow up doll in front of, in front of, in front of everyone. Wow! And um, you know, just really like when I when I when I think about it, it's actually very funny. Um, but like, you know, I it wasn't funny then. You know, um, right? I, I don't think it was, or, or it could have been. I don't really know. Maybe that was just like a normal day. Um, but, you know, my life is, is obviously very different today. Uh, but, yeah, so I, 
Are you are you feeling badly that you mentioned that you fucked the blow no, up doll? Not at all. No, don't feel don't. bad. Don't feel I don't. badly. I actually it's, okay. it's for me, it's I think it's I think it's it's part of my story, man. You know what I mean? It's I don't regret a single second of any of it. I really don't. You know, like I I'm I'm actually and I know this sounds kind of, you know, cliche because you hear it at meetings and shit, but I'm actually really fucking grateful for all of it. Every second of it. Sure. ODing, I'm grateful for it. Uh, like all the things that happened to me, I got, I, I was 19 years old. I was living on 9th Street between Avenue B and C, right next to that place, Esperanto on the corner. And um, mm. I was living in that building, uh, and I, I was 18 actually. I was living, and it was like, I actually had my own room in an apartment that I was paying rent for. Um, but I was moving lots of weight out of that place and, um, I got stuck up. I got, I put my key in the door and guys, you know, ran from the, from the floor above in the staircase, threw me into the apartment with my friend and pistol whipped us, duct taped, duct taped us, threw us in the, in the bathtub, you know, trying to rip the, the safes off the floor of the, of the, the closets. Like it was fucking scary. Um, the interesting thing was is that like uh, that was not like a that wasn't like a aha moment for me. That was like oh, you know, I guess I just gotta be 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 smarter next time. You know, I need to move. I need to move away from Esperanto. Well, I did. I moved to California yeah. and I yeah. tried that, and that was even worse. Like, I I was I <laughs> I was in L.A. I I moved in with my my actual my business partner from the meatball shop and his older brother. We moved to Venice Beach. And they had, you know, we all got an apartment on Market Street. And I was a mess. I mean, I'd never driven a car, somehow got my driver's license. You know, it was bad news. And I put my car, Angelica Houston lived across the alley from us. And one night, and I do remember this, one night um, I was pulling into the, and, and if you know L.A., like, all the like parking, like the little parking lots behind the buildings, they're so fucking tight. So there's like little alleyways, and then there's like these little tight parking spots. Anyway, I pulled in too wide. I put the car in reverse. I was drunk, and I just hit the gas, and I slammed into Angelica Houston's front property, knocked down, oh, no. knocked down her gate. The whole entire gate hit the floor. I like pulled my car up, rolled back over it, and pulled into my spot. Like nothing had ever happened, and then the next morning, I, I or the next afternoon, probably, I saw a note on my car saying, "If you don't think I have this block completely surveillanced, you're out of your mind." And Angelica Houston's uh, assistant. <laughs> wow. So, like, when when did it start going? I mean, and this I'm assuming is years before you and your meatball shop partner decided to start a restaurant. This right? was actually this was uh, yes, yes, ten years, ten years. Okay, so like. You're you're using you're drinking heavy. When did heroin get into the into the picture? And when did like the the misery start showing up? And and how did you start dealing? Well, with it? I think what happened was I moved. So when I moved to California, I tried it for like a, like a year. I I burned all my bridges. My my best friend Daniel Holzman and his older brother Eli had totally given up on me because I wrecked a motorcycle. I mean, I was just like a complete mess out there. So I came back for Christmas uh, that year. Um, in 2000 and on my Christmas when I was back for Christmas Christmas night we had to take my father to the emergency room because he had had a seizure 
Hmm. And he never came out of the emergency. He never came out of the hospital. He died on January 9th of 2001. Um, and um, uh, that for me, even though like my relationship was terrible, like as an addict, that was that was an amazing excuse to just go, you know, shift it into fifth gear and just go hard. And so that's when I really ramped up my my uh, my abuse. Um, and um, you know, I would I would stay up for days on end. It was really dark. It wasn't fun. I didn't enjoy it. I was getting into a lot of fist fights. Um, you know, I would end up in fist fights. Um, and and it was just like I was hanging out with a bunch of really bad kids. Um, still working. You know, I was working at Frank Restaurant on Second Avenue. Um, and. Um, you know, but it, it was just really ugly, and I and I I lived upstairs from the restaurant, and I would you know wake up at four o'clock in the afternoon, come downstairs for my five o'clock clock shift, and immediately start drinking. The dealer was there in no time, um, and you know, and so I was I was it, that that was my life, and then you know through the people that I was hanging out with, like you know one day I remember this guy Carlito. Um, he had said to me we were at some after hours or some some somebody's apartment, you know, at like two o'clock in the afternoon after we'd all been up for you know days. And he goes, "Here, try this," and it was dope. And um, and he gave me some dope to come, you know, to to try. And I was and I like at that moment I was like, "This is the this is the best thing ever. This is like pure amazingness." Um, and I knew that if I, if I continued to, to do it, it was going to get really bad for me. So I would just like touch and go with it. I didn't use it all the time cause I wasn't putting needles in my arm. Sure. Um, and then at the very, like, you know, it, real debauchery and just, you know, not awesome. Like hadn't taken a solid shit in years, pissing Brown, tiptoeing around my apartment, like, thinking that everybody was listening to me when nobody was around. It was just, like, really dark and, and depressing. And crazy paranoia. Crazy paranoia. And just, like, nonstop, right. nonstop using and drinking around the clock. Um, and, then, and then I, probably when I was 22, I met this girl who was beautiful, um, and she had this, like, a ni- nice apartment on 79th Street, and she was just, like, she like took me hostage and we stayed in her apartment for two weeks and did like a bundle of dope a day. And, and right. that's when like dope became part of my life. And, uh, and so I had always sort of like, you know, had it around. Um, and then I was at another girl's place and this is like bad, but I was at this girl's place who I still friends with, who I love, who I love. Just, she's sober too. Um, but we were, I was at, not her place, her boyfriend's place. And I was totally, and I knew her boyfriend. I was a bad motherfucker. And I was like with her. And I remember very clearly we had been doing a lot of dope. And there was a mirror on the headboard um, of, of the bed. And I like sat up. I was naked. I sat up in the bed and I looked over to my right and I caught a glimpse of myself. And I was completely white from head to toe, like white, pale, like, like snow white. And and, right. uh, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm dying. And I tried to stand up, and I, my knees buckled out. And she dragged me into the shower, the bathtub. And I remember coming in and out of consciousness. And, she was, and I was like, call the ambulance. And she was not trying to call the ambulance, not trying to call the, 
you know, anybody, and I was scared that I was going to die. Um, and somehow, you know, a half hour later, like, I came to. And, uh, and I didn't right. die. Um, and um, I stayed in the cold water for a while and then came out, sat in the bed. And I remember walking probably about two hours later, like, getting dressed, leaving the apartment, scared to my fucking core, saying, I'll never do this again, walking east on 12th Street from Avenue B. And that night I was, I, I, I was out. And that's when I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this to the death. Like, I remember saying that to myself at, you know, in, at, uh, I think I was at, um, what's the name of that bar across the street from Frank? Uh, anyway, some bar in the East Village. And I was like, that's it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to the end. And so for two weeks I went on an, on a, on an insane, you know, death mission. Um, and you made it, you made the decision that you were going to be a heroin addict, that that was going to be what you do. And that, I mean, I made the same decision and like, because it felt good and getting off of it is hell. And I mean, life is sometimes terrible and it felt, I mean, I remember when I, when I first decided that I was going to stay on it, I was just like, this is just what I'm going to do. And I didn't really think about it. Um, and this was the beginning of a two week fucking, uh, situation for you. And um, how did you find, like, how did you not keep in that decision? Because your bottom, like, that sounds like it was, like, near the end of your story, yeah, right? Yeah, so it was. So I, um, not everybody that I hung out with uh, was into heroin. So, like, I would still do, like, you know, I would still drink heavily and do blow. And I always was using heroin sort of on my on the side. Like, when it would be, like, when the sun was coming up, I would just, you know, use it. Like landing yeah, gear yeah. kind of thing. And, uh, but yeah. then I'd get stuck in it for a couple of days and sort of disappear. And so uh, I was on, I, was, I, was, I lived on 5th, on 2nd Ave between 5th and 6th. It was a Monday morning. I remember it very clearly. We had been up for two days. I was with two of my friends, um, one of which is sober and doing so well, and I'm fucking stoked for him. Uh, but I, they had both said to me, we're done. I had to be at work. Tuesday was my double uh, excuse me, Monday was my double. I had to be at work and um, in about an hour and a half or two hours at like 9 a.m. And I said, there's no way I can stop. So I went downstairs, started doing, you know, started getting high uh, without them. And then I caught like this, this idea came to, to my mind. And I was like, this is it. Like, I'm done. I can't. I'm going to kill myself. I don't want to do this anymore. I just don't. I don't. I, I'm, I'm not going to make it to work. I, I love my job. Everybody thinks I'm a fucking joke because they, they know that I have something to offer, but I just continue to fuck up. Um, I'm going to jump out the window. And I lived on the fifth floor of, the, of this thing, of my apartment building. And, uh, you know, I didn't fucking jump out the window, um, but I, I, I did fall out um, unconscious, and nobody can get into my room. I locked my door for, you know, I locked my bedroom door, and they were trying to get the door open finally, like, they got the door open when they realized that I had slept through work. I hadn't gone to work. And it was like 12 hours later, um, they got the door open, and they, there was essentially like a mini intervention. Um, and uh, I had gone to AA when I was 16. I went to Never Had a Legal Drink on 27th Street, and uh, I, it wasn't for me. My, my mother made a deal with me that when I moved out, you know, I would have to try to get my, my shit together. So I, I went to the Freedom Institute to, like, appease her. But I knew that there was um, AA, and so I, went, I 
I said, I, you know, I didn't die. I don't know what happened. I can't, I didn't have this white light fucking experience, but I do know that like, I went to, uh, I went to AA the next morning, um, or the next day at one o'clock, uh, on, on, uh, first and first at, uh, living now. And, um, I'm fucking lucky, man. I haven't had a drink or a drug since then. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I was 23 years old when that happened. And right. like the craziest thing is, is that like very quickly, like very fucking quickly did my life change very quickly. Let me, let me ask you this. Cause like one of the, I mean, I've worked around restaurants in New York basically my whole life here and there. And, uh, you know, I'll have to say Katz's has never been like a nexus of drugs. Katz's, you know, a bunch of stoners, everybody smokes weed at Katz's, whatever, but it's not a nexus of drugs. If you go to these clubs and you go to a lot of bars, everybody's on Coke. Everybody's like deep into alcoholism. Like when you started to, did you find that at work everybody was using? Um, no, not like, like at my, at, at, at the restaurant that I worked at, um, like we did, we were, we were, sort of allowed not allowed but like we you know we did whatever the fuck we wanted to do and we sort of ran the show there um and so yes there was a lot of of drinking and not as much drug doing Uh, there was a couple of us that that did it um you know i was definitely there was a bartender before me which which made which literally enabled me like it was a like i knew that this guy was you know, he was as bad as I was for the most part, you know. And, and so once I started working there and I saw that, that he was, you know, taking a, 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 you know, a highball glass, filling it about an inch and a half with orange juice and then literally pouring a bottle of Stoli orange into the, into the glass to the top, I was like, yes, this is my fucking kind of spot. I can fucking right. do it here. And then he and I would just, you know, we would get a lot of Coke together and I just knew that, like, I was able to do it. And so... You know, but the truth is, is that, and I got to mention one other thing about how I, how I uh, forgot, the, I left something out, but, you know, the restaurant scene in New York City, working in restaurants, working in, in nightclubs is a whole nother ball game. but, like, it is, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like, it just is, you know, like, that, that scene, for the most part, where, you know, Cats isn't like a... Like, uh, Cats is like, no, yeah, Cats is, 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 is a, like, iconic, like, you come to New York and you go to Cats's, right? Like, people aren't going there to get hammered at night. People go there after they're hammered. Uh, yes, you know what I'm yes, saying? yes. But, like, yes. the restaurant that I worked in was like, it was a restaurant, but it was definitely a scene. Like, you know, there was, right. there was a big scene there. Um, and so, what I will say, though, is my boss, who I owe my fucking life to, and I worked at Frank for a long time. I worked there for almost nine years until before I opened the meatball shop. But um, when I slept through work that day, Frank, um, you know, took me aside and he was like, Mikey, I love you, man. He's like, I fucking love you, but I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. Like, you are killing yourself in front of me. And I know I party. And we all have a good time, but you take it to a whole nother level, you're fired. I can't have this on my watch. I'm sorry. I begged him for my job. Begged him. And he gave me an ultimatum and he said, look, there's only one way I can give you your job back. And if you come to the restaurant at 8 o'clock in the morning, clean with the porters, call me when you get here, 
If you call me a minute past eight, you're done. I'm not letting you bartend uh, for 30 days, um, and, and you got to get sober. And I said, no, deal. Like, that was it. I was like, deal. And so that, along with me sort of, like, feeling like I wanted to die the day before, and I didn't, and Frank told me that, like, this is what I needed to do. And so that was, that's how I, that's how I got sober, dude. And, it, you know, all the, all, like, the, the New York City street scene, you know, is, I don't know what it's like now. I have no clue, you know, but I know that, like, when I was involved in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. Ruckus. Yeah, it was ruckus. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the most amazing thing to me about the story is because, like, you're, the meatball shop is a big deal. You know, it's a, it's a huge business. Is it outside of Manhattan? We, we, or is we, just in Manhattan? we tried it. We tried it twice outside of Manhattan and we couldn't pull it off. Well, in Manhattan, it's a huge deal. Uh, Seymour's this uh, seafood chain or restaurant. How many Seymour's are there? Six. Yeah, six Seymour's. One is right near my dad's house on 8th Avenue. And, uh, and delicious. I've eaten there. And, I, and I've eaten at the meatball shop. But the thing that gets me about the story that I love so much is, like, I'm sure that the wheels were turning in your head as you're working in all these places. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, maybe I could do something like this. And when Frank says, you're fucked, go get sober and clean the place, he's basically giving you the blueprint for how you can live the life of your dreams, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, clean my restaurant and clean your life, and th- and that's probably like an explosion in your brain, right? You could see how to how to live your dream. He 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 definitely gave me, um, even though like, you know, he looked at me as like this kid. Uh, he saw something in me um, when I was twenty five, about a, a year and a half after I got sober. I was I was totally. I, I, so, I mean, I, I, the first year of sobriety was really fucking hard for me. I mean, I, like, picked up a food addiction. I, I picked up, I, like, I, you know, I got, because I was, I was pretty, like, violent on the street. I mean, I, I, I had this anger shit that was, that I was, that I have zero, um, like, identification with today. But, like, I did. I was, I was this guy that, like, if I was at Max Fish and you said something to me that I didn't like, that I didn't like, I would just punch you in the fucking face. I, I, I don't even know where that shit comes from now, but I, I was. And so anyway, these two guys knew that I was like that. Once I got sober, they were actually in the program. There were two guys that I, that I thought were the coolest dudes ever. I looked up to them. They dragged me to a Muay Thai gym down in Chinatown, and I became obsessed with Muay Thai kickboxing. Obsessed to the, like, I was in the gym training four hours a day, every day, no, like, like it was an, it was a, it was an obsession. I, I, I learned how to, I wanted to learn how to, um, how to like really fight. And, uh, and I have, and I can honestly say that I have not been in a single physical altercation, not one since I've been sober. Now, now, bef- which is great before that, before Moy, Moy, do I say that right? Muay Thai. Um, were you into fitness like, were you a fitness guy? Like, was that part of your thing? No, I mean, when I, Wellness, was, none. When I was a kid, I played sports. I, like, played, I played street hockey when I was, like, really young. And then I got a scholarship to go play um, hockey at Skyrink. They, you know, they gave, like, financial aid to a bunch of kids. So I got that, and I played ice hockey until I was about 12, 13. 
and then you know drugs came into my life. So I, I loved sports as a young kid, but no, fitness, wellness was never a thing. I never, I, I, for the years that I drank and did drugs, like wellness was the furthest thing from my life. Fitness, not but, even a, not even a, not even a day. But Muay Thai filled the void of violence, and it, and it filled the void of getting your aggression out, and it, and your energy went into it. And I mean, it seems to me like just watching your story and hearing about it, like between that and sobriety and the dream of hustling, where did the, the meatball shop come from? I, I remember hearing a story about your, your partner and you telling him you were going to go to culinary school and you wanted to open a, a business with yeah. him. But, what, but how did you get the idea? Well, I mean, I just want to say one other thing. Like you, you touched on it earlier where you were like, don't you see a correlation between you know the drinking and the drugging to like what you do today in business and whatever? And, and so, yes, like, as soon as I gave up the alcohol and the drugs, I latched on to, to, a few, to other things, which, which, were, which were, thank God, positive, right? I, I put the amount of energy that I used to put into, into using into fitness and Muay Thai. And so I got in, within, within six months of getting sober, I went from, like, a bloated, puffy, never-ran-a-mile guy to an insane animal like just right. like like specimen of of a, of a of a of a human in terms of like what i felt like and, and what i looked like and it was probably because i i just dove so deep into it and i and i and i took it very seriously but yeah no one would have ever thought that i, I would have gone from that guy that would stay up for 48 hours and and you know party through work and you know do some gnarly shit later on that night um to the guy that was like in the gym at seven o'clock in the morning every day, working out four hours a day, eating chicken and broccoli, and that's all I ate, um, you know. And then, and then, like I learned to to sort of like balance it out a little bit. But fitness, and this is something for anybody that's listening to this, that I, you know, I would I would say at its core. And I don't want to call anybody out because I, I feel like, you know, this is, a, this is just my opinion. A lot of people, in my opinion, hide in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You, you get sober and you wear that sobriety badge on your chest and you sit in the same seat at your home group and you pray and you meditate, but you don't, like, apply the principles to begin to grow your life necessarily. And I started to... Right. Like, I think, like, and, and by the way, like, AA saves millions of lives, and I owe my life to AA. But I do think that there is sort of a level of, um, like, stickiness in the program that, that, that keep people coming back and not necessarily achieving what they can be doing. Um, because... Or using using the twelve steps as a jump off to their right. life, using the twelve steps to accomplish something else, using their freedom to find what they want, as opposed to this being the destination. This can be the vehicle to right. get to the and destination. And that's what it was for me, right? Like when I, right. you know, I always used to hear. And and for the first ten years of sobriety, there is no question of a doubt. I went to a meeting every day. I still pray and meditate. I don't meditate every day, but I pray. Every single day, like it's fucking like again, like it's putting on my socks and brushing my teeth and wearing my contacts. I pray every day, um, but the first ten years, it was in, it was integral for me to be at a meeting every day. 
in the last six years of sobriety, I've, I haven't felt the need to go to a meeting every day. And I remember hearing, you know, and we always hear it like in the rooms, like, oh, you know, anniversary months, you know, like you hear like there's a ton of people year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, it starts to slow down, year seven, it starts to get smaller, year eight, there's not many people, and then it like skips until year 15. And they always say that like the reason why that happens is because people stop going to meetings and they go out and start using again. And that is definitely true. There's no doubt in a, in a number of cases. But I also have a theory that once there are, there's a law, there's a there's a group of people that that go to AA that really understand how to apply the principles in all of their affairs. They they begin to build a life for themselves, and then they don't feel like they have to go to AA every day to live and live what they've learned in the rooms for the first many years that they've been there. And so they slow down going to meetings. Doesn't mean that they're going to fucking go out and get high and drink again. Um, and then maybe they get to a point in life where they're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to dive back into the program. Um, I've been lucky where I'm not the person that has completely stopped going to meetings. Like I, I have a home group. I make it every Wednesday. I still have sponsees. As a matter of fact, I did a six step with a sponsee earlier today. Um, but like I, I don't, I, I, you know, I feel like fitness is something that, that, that is not talked about enough in the program. And I know I'm a living example of AA got me to fitness and the combination of fitness and AA is why I, I, I live a great life today, period. That's the truth. Can I tell you something here? Listen, yeah. listen. The one thing that I have not done in my lifetime is I've never been close to fit. It's never happened. I've dreamt about it. I, I, like, I did keto this year from January to March and I lost a bunch of weight. I, I got the coronavirus in March, so I gave up keto because um, I couldn't handle it. Uh, I, I had years where I would do 100 push-ups a day or you know, 200 sit-ups and 100 push-ups and I'd walk miles and miles, but I never dove into fitness. And, I, you know, and I'm still not close to it. But in my mind, I say, one day I'm going to be somebody that runs a mile, that runs two miles, that, that puts the energy into that. And, I, and I, I feel jealous of what you do, and I feel left out, and I feel scared that I can't do okay, it. Okay, well, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm happy to tell you. You should just fucking do it, because I know for sure 1,000, 100 million percent in my life, I draw a direct line for my daily happiness. And I am, I am not fucking singing from the hilltops here. I'm just telling you how it is. I train every single day, six days a week. I know that the, the, I put fitness before everything and in front of AA and in front of my family and in front of my business. Why? Because fitness makes me a better person and with the tools that I've learned from AA, I know that I have to put myself first in order to be of service to others. So AA and, and fitness together are like fucking, you're like superpower. You, like the, the shit right. that you learn from Alcoholics Anonymous and the work that you do on yourself combined with the confidence that you get from fucking going to the gym and feeling well and looking good and feeling good, you're like unstoppable. Like, truly, and I'm a better father, 
I'm a better husband. I'm a better employer. I'm a better fucking business partner. I'm a better friend. I'm a better son. I'm, I'm like, I'm better when I know. Okay. I'm like a fucking cookie eating, fucking going, watching TV, like fucking, I do the podcast. I do my job. I take care of my children. I like plant vegetables, but I am not, where do I start? What do you do? What's the tip to start? What do you do, man? Keto is retarded. That's, that shit doesn't make any sense. Where okay, do I fucking so, start? So what I would say is, is, is keto is not retarded. It, it actually is a, is, a, is a very effective um, means of uh, taking weight off fast. Um, it's not a, yeah, it's it not a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, as far as no. I'm concerned, some people will say it is. As far as I'm concerned, it's not just because it's so restrictive and you can pop out of key ketosis at any time with like eating the wrong, you know, like too much avocado. Um, but um, where do you start? You start by waking up in the morning. Uh, I don't know if you say your prayer, if you say if you pray or not. I do. I, I do. W- I wake I do. up in the morning. I'm already on my fucking hands and knees. And I bang out 50 push-ups, however long it takes me. Now I bang them out in one shot. But however long it takes me, I bang out 50 push-ups. And when I'm done with my 50 push-ups, I roll over on my back and I do 100 sit-ups. And that's where you start. And you fucking feel good. And it takes you 10 minutes. And that's where you start. And then once coronavirus is, is, is a little bit, uh, has, has subsided and there's a, there's a vaccine and we can get back to the gym, like, you, you actually go. And you go first thing in the morning, and you get it out of the way, and it's. Give me numbers again: fifty push-ups and how many sit-ups? What do you want me to do in the morning? Hundred sit-ups, fifty push-ups to start. Yeah, and it doesn't. I'm not saying you can do you can do ten sets of five. And no, no, I can do that. I can I can still get down and do fifty at once. I'm, I can I can still yeah, do that. So I can so do that. So, I'll kill, I'll die, but I'll do that's it. Where you start. I'm with you. That's where you start, and you start at home. And like I used to, I used to have this crazy calisthenics regimen that I would do every day. Um, in the morning, and my wife thought I was totally nuts, but I would do 300 push-ups in the morning and close to 1,000 crunches every day. And that was like, I would wake up, I'd put water on my face, I'd brush my teeth, and I'd get on the floor, I'd do my prayers, and then I'd do my, my, my calisthenics every single day. And I just knew that like, if I couldn't make it to the gym, I got my calisthenics done. And every week, you add five push-ups, and you add 10 sit-ups. And that's how you go. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. it. Um, Okay, I'm going to do that. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to get out of bed, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do the 50 and the 100. I hate doing it. Just real quick, the last thing I just want to say on it, and and this this is just the bottom line. We're alcoholics and we're drug addicts. We're in recovery. It's incredible. We our lives are very different. We need to win. Like as we 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 wanted to control situations with drinking and doing drugs. And we don't have the opportunity to do that anymore um, because it didn't work for us. So we need to be able to, to do little things that give us the same win feeling that it was to, like, score, right? And so the way I win every day is I get to the fucking gym. I drop little wins in my path throughout the day that make me feel accomplished outside of just going to an AA meeting. Um, and, uh, and that's how I've created my career, like I little win every day. Like I'm like I'm gonna do this little thing. I'm gonna make sure I get to the gym so I feel good. I I, I like feel good about myself. Um, and now I can now because I have now I've got this confidence. I can go do the next thing. And so that's how the meatball shop came about. I sat down with Frank when I was 25 years old. I said, Hey man, I'm at a place 
I know I'm going to do this. Tell me, how to, tell me how to do it. And he looked at me and he said, Mikey, I love you to death. And this was in his apartment. He said, Mikey, I love you to death. I'll be honest with you. I don't think you have it in you. And that's when a, a switch went off for real in my head. And I said, I'm going to show this fucking guy that I've got it in me. So I said, okay, well, you might not think so, but I'm going to go out and, and do it. And I was like, can you give me a, a, some sort of a roadmap? And he was like, well, I want you to go to culinary school. In general, he's like, you're going to be in the restaurant business. You want to do it for real, you should go to culinary school. So I went to culinary school. Uh, I did two years at the French Culinary Institute. And when I got out of there, I put a plan together. And I was, at, I stay, I was, I was bartending at Frank Restaurant the whole time. And there were regulars at the restaurant that I was sort of keeping abreast. And I was still, you know, like these guys have watched me go from a boy to a man pretty much. And, uh, and I basically told them when I'm done with culinary school, I'm going to write a business plan. I'm going to get my best friend from childhood, Dan Holzman, to come back to New York. And we're going to open up a restaurant together. And I want, and, you know, and, I'm, and, and when I have that business plan ready, I'm going to put it in front of all of you guys. And this is like all regulars that came to the bar that were like, you know. These guys aren't making, you know, tons of cash. But I was like, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to fucking ask everybody I know to help me. And so I did. So I got out of culinary school. I got on the phone with Daniel. I said, dude, it's time. Um, I was 27. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm like running these, these restaurants in, in, in uh, San Francisco. Just start putting the plan together and we'll see where it goes. I started putting the plan together. And uh, finally, I got him to come back over here. At Frank Restaurant, I would order late night the rigatoni al ragu, which is a rigatoni pasta dish with meatballs and sausage. It was like my favorite thing on the planet, except most nights, because I was already, I was deep into the health game at that point, I would just take the pasta out and I would just have the bowl of, of meatballs and sausage and tomato sauce with like a side of broccoli, a side of spinach. And that was what, that's where the meatball shop What about the breadcrumbs and the meatballs though? Doesn't that fuck you up or no? You were like, I can deal with a little bit of breadcrumbs. Oh, yeah. It was just pretty much like I, I, you know, I just didn't want to have a big, huge bowl of pasta at night. So I would take out the pasta. And the beauty of the meatball shop was it came from a place where everybody loves meatballs. People, you just know, people fucking love meatballs. It's just the truth. You know, if, unless you're a vegan and then we make vegan balls for you. But like most people love meatballs. And you're not, Ita- me- you're not Italian though, right? You're Jewish, right? I'm I'm Jewish, but my, I mean, I have Italian. My grand, my father's mother's Italian. Okay, Italian and grandmother. So it has, that counts. Yeah, it, but it, but it has nothing to do with the meatball shop. Um, however, she did make amazing meatballs and the best French toast in Queens. Okay, so like you fucking had a vision that you needed a product, and and the holy grail of these pro- meatballs were were relatively cheap easy to eat they could be high food you know high concept foodie kind of thing and um and delicious and and the the thing i saw was that the first location had a window near a bar and you knew these drunks were going to eat the meatballs and you were like let's do it right pretty much i just knew where i wanted to go i knew i wanted to be in the lower east side um and you know i just I, i just had this vision and daniel who's the chef of the of the meatball shop was like sort of following my lead in regards to, because he had been on the West Coast for over 10 years, so he was just sort of following my lead on like where I wanted it to be and what I wanted it to feel like and look like. And he was, he put the food together and the brains behind, the, I mean, he's a fucking insanely smart guy, Daniel, like one of the smartest guys I know. So like in terms of like the business side of it, like the P&L and all the fucking shit, he handled that. And I took care of the culture and the creativity and the vibe and, and the brand. And, 
you know, we opened it up and it was a massive hit. Um, you know, 250 people were lined up for the opening um, of the restaurant on the Lower East Side. You know, people were waiting three and a half hours for a bowl of meatballs until four o'clock in the morning for years. It was crazy. Uh, and, and that was like my... That was like my crash course in, in what it really meant to be an entrepreneur and a business person and to, and to feel like I had the responsibility of a lot of people that were relying on me to keep the doors open and do great things. And, um, and so that's how my career started, you know. And, uh, and then, I, had, and then I, was, I came up with this other idea to do seafood. I wanted to open up a fish taco spot because I love fish tacos. And everybody was like, oh, there's no fish tacos in New York. You got to go to L.A. And I was like, fuck you. We're on an island. We're surrounded by water and good fish. Like, we can serve local fish and fucking put it in a taco with guac, you know, guacamole. And it's going to be good. And, uh, and so I did that. And, um, and then that one was another super successful business and, and grew that one to, to six restaurants and now and, I'm, uh, you know. Well, I mean, from what I understand, like, you have, I mean, these restaurants are all successful and, uh, and people love them. You know, people love Meatball Shop and people love Seymour's and, and the vibe is right. You know, you definitely have it on the vibe in both of those places. Like, you just look at that place and you know it's a place that's going to have good food. So, I mean, I just walked past Seymour's like a million times. I was like, what the fuck? Because, like, that wasn't there forever. I mean, I grew up on 27th Street, so I always walked up 8th Avenue. And when I first saw Seymour's, I was like, that looks right. Yeah, look, I think, I think what, what, what something, you know, the, the, food, the food at both of the restaurants is good. It's not, it's not groundbreaking food. What we sell at the restaurant is culture. What right. we sell is like we sell the energy. We sell the, the atmosphere. And people love that. And especially in places like New York where people like don't want to spend a ton of money on a regular basis, but they want a great experience. And so that's where I come in as an entrepreneur where I'm like, I've been working in restaurants my whole life. I know what a great experience looks like and feels like. I know that I can, I can sell you anything if I, if I make you feel really good when you walk in. Right. And now you're doing that shift to uh, TV and podcasts and, and wellness drink and stuff. Like if you could pick one thing that would be the dream, is it done? Or is there, what's like, what's the next dream the ultimate dream in your mind. I know you wanted to get down to 3% body fat. Did you do that? I've already done that. Um, well, so I, what's the know, next frontier to get really fat? What's, <laughs> what's, the, what's the plan? I think uh, I'll always have a restaurant uh, that, I'm, that I'm creating. I've got a new restaurant idea. So I, I, I recently moved my family upstate. I love, I love it up here. Uh, I never thought that I'd be out of New York City like on a permanent level. And who knows if it's permanent, but at least for a year we're giving it a shot. And so I want to open up a restaurant up here. I've already got a name for it and a menu. And I want to open up a place that, uh, you know, like, you know, like as a city kid and you're a city kid, like when you would go upstate or go to places out of the city, like when I think about my childhood, like I remember going to like Montauk as a kid with, you know, friends that had houses there. And like on Saturday evening, you would go to like the ice cream spot and like wait online to get ice cream. And mm-hmm. that doesn't exist in my area. And, and I really want to have like that feeling. Like I, even when I just say it, it makes me feel good. Like I want to like I would love to be the place that like all the families come to on like a Saturday evening and line up and get like ice cream and burgers and just like great food that's like not fancy, but in a really cool environment with outdoor space and potentially a drive-in movie theater behind it. <laughs> Dude, make it happen. That's awesome. 
And I think also with the culture thing, you marry that old culture of what you're talking about because I know what you're talking about, all those spots upstate, and, and, yeah. and everyone is just standing out under the stars and it's late and it feels good and it's still lit. You know, I, yeah. I know what you're talking about. But you, yeah. you mix that in with like whatever, grass-fed meat and fucking fancy ice cream and, and you got something. I'm, I'm excited yeah, for you. It. Now I have something too. It's really sweet. I really want to hear your opinion. I, I, I pitched it to Gregory, uh, one of the chefs from Top Chef, and now I want to run it by you. Are you with me? Okay. Yeah. As you know, I worked at Katz's for a long time. I yeah. used to get high. I used to smoke a lot of pot and, and, and go to work. And I was at work one day, and at Katz's, one of the things that we sell is a black and white cookie. Okay? Yeah. So I see a kid, Dominican kid at Katz's, crazily enough, cutting the frosting off the, the top of the black and white cookie, putting the white and black together, and taking a bite. And I was like, what the fuck is this kid doing? I took three cookies, and I went home. And I invited my best friend over, and we got stoned, and I told him what this kid was doing. And he was like, that's crazy. I was like, I want to do it. I'm going to see what it's like. <laughs> so I cut, I cut the black and white off the top of the cookie, and I looked at my friend. His name was Devin, and I said, Devin, it's black and white in every bite. And this thing came to me. It's a new black and white cookie. We're going to call it the Othello because one side is black and one side is white, like the old game Othello or like the Shakespeare play, whatever. It's black and white in every bite. It's black and white in every bite. I mean, dude, that is a fucking killer idea. I do, love that. Do you idea. want in? I'll fucking throw you in. You come in. Make it happen for me. Make it happen with me. I've been talking to bakers. The bakers I talk to have emotional fucking problems. They can't fucking figure it out. But I know that with a mind like yours and drive like yours, two Jews from New York, we can turn the fucking uh, black and white cookie market on its head. Othello I mean, ice cream. You in? What do you say? I mean, let's 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 fucking dive in. Let's let's talk about it. One thing I will say is is that my Daniel and and his brother came up with a brilliant idea. Uh oh. <laughs> they both love. No, listen. They both love Rice Krispie treats, and they both love ice cream. Right. So they came up with an idea to take, to make a Rice Krispie treat, hollow it out, and put ice cream in it. And so when you take a bite, you get Rice Krispie treat and ice cream in every bite, right? There was not a single bite that you didn't get the both the ice, Rice Krispie treat in it. They made it happen. It sounds like a very good idea. I will say the marketing, the, the tagline, black and white in every bite, is fucking brilliant. And that in itself is like... Revolutionary. Thank you. I, I, it's very good. I think we should do something with that, but let's just, I want to go back to your partner's idea for a second. Another time when I was getting, I'm very into ice cream, and I was getting very high, and um, I think Ben and Jerry's was either, they weren't asking for flavors, but I wanted to come up with a flavor. So, uh, and I had a, a hippie friend named Pat. And I, I came, my flavor was called Pat's Crispy Kindness. And what it was was that real vanilla bean ice cream with a ripple of serious dark chocolate fudge and then fudge-covered Rice Krispie treats. But they didn't like it. They sent me a fridge magnet. But what I realized was that the Rice Krispie treat with ice cream gets too hard. Rice Krispie treats need to be soft. And that's the problem with your, problem, your, your friend's idea because well, it'll hurt. So here's the deal. They figured out a way to do it, and they actually made the product, and they sold it all over the country at, at like, Whole Foods and Walmart. It was called QBs. Look I've up. heard of QBs, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it was QBs. It, did, it ended up not working, and they lost a shit ton of cash. But it's just like, <laughs> the, 
here's the hardest part with products. It's very the hardest part with products is that it's very hard to tell the story that you just told me on the shelf. That's the hardest part with a product because the story that you just told me makes me want to go fucking figure out a way to do this. When you got a product on the shelf that says black and white in every bite, Othello, black and white in every bite, nobody knows, nobody understands the fact that you were at Katz's Deli, which is one of the most iconic restaurants in the world, and you saw some young Dominican kid do this thing and flip it over, and you were like, boom, that's it. Like, that story, if you get on Jimmy Kimmel with that story, you're done. That's it. Your, your product, everybody in the world is going to buy that fucking thing. When it's like Reese's time. Pieces with the chocolate and the peanut butter, right? It's delicious. So, <laughs> like, you know, it's, I, think, I think it's actually, I think it's actually a, a really fun idea. Imagine this. Imagine Washington Square Park filled with white people and black people. White people wearing black shirts, black people wearing white shirts, all of them chanting, it's black and white in every bite. Fucking Gatorade things full of milk they're throwing on each other, eating cookies, (laughs) stuffing their face. It's the time of their life. I mean, this is a great thing. It's something that totally personifies racial harmony in a baked good. It is next level. I want to see a beautiful world where, where black and white people enjoy each other again. Or at least for the first time. But uh, let's think about this Othello thing. The seed has been planted in your head. If you want to see some packaging, I'll send it to you. Um, you already I, got packaging? I have design. You know what I mean? It's something. It should be something. And I could see the way you're nodding your head. What I see it as is selling a little piece of New York City around the world. You know, and it's taking this this foodie item or this I'm sorry, this New York City item and then turning it into a foodie thing where it's like really good dark chocolate, really delicious vanilla. It's not the same cakey black and white cookie. It's like a snappy thing. I see three in a package for five bucks like Tate's does it all over the place. Mm -hmm. And we just sell New York City. Fucking cool. All right. All right. We can talk about this off the show. It was a pleasure to have you on the show to hear some of your story. It blew me away. He's got your your podcast is called Born or Made, right? And yep. the, and this, what's where do you see food porn? Is that what's going on with food porn TV show? Food porn's dead, man. We had we shot twenty we shot twenty six episodes. It was fun as hell. It was a great experience for me. But they canceled the show after two seasons. But it was fun. Hopefully, I get back to TV. That would be that's something I want to do is get back to TV. Um, you know, once all this stuff goes goes. Uh, calms down a little bit well i love i love the tv thing and you can check out obviously seymour's in manhattan meatball shop in manhattan born or made on itunes but seriously it was a pleasure to have you on i love hearing your story thanks man i really enjoyed being here and uh you know this was fun as hell fucking othello man it's the future (laughs) the future is black and white in every bite i love i've I'm going to make a phone call right after we get off of the phone. I'll send, you, I'll send you my shit now. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay. All right, take care. All right, man. Nice Later. meeting you. Later. So I didn't even know anything about Michael Chernow. I had had Andrew Zimmern on the show, and his publicist was like, do you want this guy Michael Chernow? And I was like, I don't know. But he was really good, I thought. Oh, he was amazing. He's awesome. Very inspirational. And, he- and like, I, just, I felt like... I felt like it was, in a lot of ways, my story or your story. Like, it was, you know, it sounded like a similar time when we were 
in New York City using uh, when I was clubbing and, you know, working in restaurants. It was very relatable for me. Well, I also heard he came from a fucked up family. Yeah. Yeah. Did that, did that like pull the heartstrings for you? Um, no, I mean, it made me think like how many kids have a similar experience, especially like in the five boroughs, like where, you know, it's not that uncommon to have to be sharing a bedroom or not even have a bedroom at all, you know, because of how dense the city is and just that's how it is. But, you know, and, and what it means for kids who have like abusive or, or alcoholic drug addicted parents, what it means for kids right now, you know, that have no place to go, that have no escape, um, you know, during this pandemic that are being abused. Fucked up. Yeah, when I met Aurora, she was like a, a, a burgeoning club kid. She was going out <laughs> in her fancy T-shirts and sparkly, sparkly shit and dancing the night away. Right, Rory? Yes, yes. And taking some ecstasy and some yeah. LSD. Yep. You're doing it up. Um, I, it did. It reminded me of our story, too. And it reminded me of uh, just the city. And I, I just my favorite thing about his story is he had a dream and he pursued it and he did it. You know, I just love that. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, it's, um, and I lived right near Frank restaurant, right near supper, right where he worked and, you know, and used and Lower East Side, East Village. Um, yeah. And I was just that the owner of Frank was just like all over Instagram during lockdown, like feeding hospital workers and giving away recipes. And, you know, I can just really envision you know, how a restaurant is a lot like a family and they supported him and helped him and, you know, inspired him to be this entrepreneur. I'm like, where where did I fucking go wrong? You know, why why wasn't I an entrepreneur? I mean, I thought about it. Listen, I wanted to get out of the restaurant business very badly. But now that I in hindsight, I'm like, mm, I did love it. Maybe it would have been good to open a place. But although right now the restaurant, it's not a good business to have. No, but you know what I'm thinking about? You ready? Yeah. Taking Dopey, you ready? Yeah. On to Shark Tank. Ah. You don't okay. sound you don't sound enthusiastic. <laughs> um you watch Shark Tank? I watch Shark Tank like a fucking Bible study reads the Talmud. Okay. See, I don't watch it. Dude. Like- fucking Shark Tank and V for Vendetta. I literally find nothing in this world more relaxing than eating and watching Shark Tank. Holy shit. Because it's dreams and it's shit. So, and my, it turns out my dad is really into Shark Tank. So the other day my dad was out here, right? And your dad uh, is your fucking Shark Tank investor. Hello. He doesn't have money like that. <laughs> he, he doesn't have money like that. <laughs> my, my dad, if my dad loses money, he's broke. You know, he's not. Don't, a, tell, don't tell Alan. I said he's going to hear you say that. He's going to get pissed. <laughs> He's gonna he's gonna get pissed. It's also gonna think the dopey he lives in public housing. You're you're propagating the belief that he has money. No, he's not he's not your he's not your benefactor. Now listen, so I tell my dad that I think Dopey should be on Shark Tank, right? And he gets this and my dad wears a mask twenty four seven now, and he gets this look in his eye. And rather than he watches Shark Tank, and my dad, as everybody knows, is very smart, he says Rather than giving me advice, he says, 
okay, David, I'm going to be the shark and I'm going to grill you and I'm going to ask you the questions that you need answers for. And I'm like, Dad, I don't, I don't have... I was like, I don't, I don't have any fucking answers. What I, he, he's like, well, he's like, you have a podcast. It doesn't make you any money. It doesn't make anybody any money. How is it going to make the sharks money? And I said... Dopey is a lifestyle. It is the first brand to marry addiction, recovery, dumb shit, and fun. What do you think? The dopey lifestyle. I think it could I, I think it could work, and I think, you know, someone there could help you monetize it more. You know? You've got advertising, you've got merch. What are other ways that you could make it profitable? Well, that's the other thing. Then you have to drag the dopey nation out to make them pay money. I, all I could think about is retreats and fucking sneaker deals and stuff. I don't know. Dopey nation, if you have any ideas on how to monetize. Like the, some, huh? I'm like, it's like some self-help guru. Oh, God. Cringe. Yeah, it's not going to work. But Dopey Nation, if you have an idea of how to monetize the dopey lifestyle and you think me going on Shark Tank is a good idea, send it an email. And if you think it's a bad idea, send it an email too. You know who hates You know what could be good is like you it might not you might not get the investment, but you're good TV, you'll be good TV and then maybe you could get picked up for other press or other TV appearances. Like maybe it, that's how it could work in your favor. It would be good maybe publicity. Then, maybe then you could get on Jimmy Kimmel like Michael was saying. Does Michael say that? Michael Chernow said that? I think he said that in regards to like the Othello. Right. Let's see if that makes it into the show or not. But I can take this out of the show too. You know who hates the idea of going me going on Shark Tank? Who? Nora. Why? Nora like started crying when I told her I was going to go on Shark Tank because you know how I am. I was like, I was like, I'm going on Shark Tank. Fuck it, it's happening. And she like, she got really quiet. She got really upset, and she's like, "Well, Daddy, I'm not going to watch it." And I said, "I said why?" And she said, "Because they're going to be mean to you, Daddy." And I said, "Well, I'm going to be mean to them, Nora." I'm going to fucking set those sharks straight. And she goes, well, they're not going to give you any money, daddy. And I said, I said, well, maybe they will. But I think she's right. And I, and I think, you know, I think she was trying to be kind by saying she didn't want me to go on the show because they'd be mean to her, mean to me. I think in reality, she didn't want me to go on the show because I would embarrass her. Oh, I mean, life is very embarrassing for, is she nine? She's 10. Where the fuck have you been? God. I start after they turn five. I really lose the plot. <laughs> you, I lose track. You stop paying attention. But you haven't I seen her. You that. haven't. When did you move to California? Twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. So that was two years ago. Yeah, you you should know yeah. that she's ten. You should know how old she is. But yeah, I haven't seen her in a while. Now, in other big news, in twenty minutes. Aurora and I are going to an alcoholics or a 12 step Zoom meeting, and I am the speaker, and I'm supposed to create the topic, and I don't know what to do. So, Aurora, what do you think I should do? Okay, so some topic ideas. Yes. Now, the kind of um, obvious ones uh, are always like acceptance or gratitude. Or you could do one of my favorites, freedom from the bondage of self. Um, you know, I, I heard think- yesterday when I, I, I was driving and I listened to Jim Carrey on the Howard mm-hmm. Stern show, and all mm-hmm. he talked about was freedom from bondage of self. It was pretty cool. Nice. 
So that's a good one. Also, I think my, my thing this week has been, you know, I'm all worried because I haven't worked in four months and I don't know when I'm going to work and I didn't get some job I thought I expected and deserved. And, you know, feeling resentful of other people that are working and, you know, how can I put spiritual growth before money, power, prestige? Like, I'm so focused on the material and, you know, the literature says, like, you know, put your spiritual growth first and everything else will fall into place, right? Like tr- to dependence on your higher power. So that's faith, uh, right? If that was a topic, that would be faith. Or humility, yeah, or, or faith. See, like, I, I've all of a sudden, I, I've developed a little bit of a practice. Like, I, I'm, and I don't like to talk about it on Dopey because I do sound I like some kind of dipshit guru type. Because, I mean, like, if I became some sort of, like, guru type, would you follow me, Aurora? My gut reaction is get fucked. You're gonna, yeah, I, I, I don't see uh, leading. I don't see that. But you want to hear about my spiritual practice or no? Yeah, but what, but let's uh, decide your topic first, and then let's hear your spiritual practice. Well, I think my topic is going to be my spiritual practice. You know, like when things are bad, look to the universe. You know what I mean? Refl- don't get caught up in the moment. Like when things are bad, like when you're fighting with your partner or you're frustrated that you're not getting that job or things aren't going your way, you, uh, you look to the higher power. That is what I'm going to talk about. The power of prayer and meditation. Okay. All right. You don't like it. See, I don't like it for dopey. I feel like such a fucking fraud to talk about this shit on dopey. I hate it. Dude, you've changed. You've grown, and, like, I think the new sponsor's been good for you, and I think you're actually, like, doing some of the work, and you're getting relief out of it. So, fuck it. I think it's good to put it out there. Yeah, it just makes me uncomfortable. But um, why don't you read that, that email? I see the change in you. You don't even see me. You haven't seen I me in it. years. I hear it. Yeah, how is it? how am I different? How have I changed? Like I said, like these are not things you used to talk about before. These are not um, actions you took. I feel like your attitudes are changing. The way you react to things are changing. All right. Do you want to hear my last, my, 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 my crazy God story? My crazy AA psycho God story? Yes. All right. So check it out. I, I've become like crazy irresponsible or more so. If you know me, right? Uh, You've become? Well, how many seasons? Okay. There's winter, spring, summer, and fall. So for three of those seasons, I can wear the same pair of jeans every day. Like, and I'm fine with that. So in those jeans, I keep my wallet and my keys. But in the summer, I can't wear the jeans. It's too hot. So I wear, I wear shorts and I wear sweatpants and I wear whatever, bathing suits. And my clothes are too loose. So if I put my wallet and my keys in my pocket, the, the, the shit falls off. My sweatpants fall off. My shorts fall off. It's very uncomfortable. So I've been losing my wallet constantly. I lose my keys and my wallet constantly. Okay. That's you. You have to do like Michael said, like when you get deep into addiction, you got to wear your keys around your wrist. 
Yeah, that's what we're talking about. But the keys, the keys I always have faith will turn up. The wallet, I'm like have this crippling fear that I'm leaving at places. So the other morning I wake up and I have all sorts of work to do and I don't have my wallet. And like I'm bugged out. I can't like be good to my family. I can't, I cannot get out of my head. Cause I'm also like, I'm such a piece of shit. I lost my wallet. I can't find my wallet. I lost my wallet. I can't find my wallet. And I had all this work to do for Katz's. So I go upstairs to the attic, right? And I and I pray to God and I say, God, please help me find my wallet, right? And all of a sudden, it flashes in my head what I did with my wallet which was I put it in the stroller. I put it in the zip-up pocket of the stroller. And I was like, nice. I remember. And I, I go downstairs, and I open up the zip-up pocket of the stroller, right? And the wallet's there. And I, and I look inside the window, and I hold the wallet up, almost like I'm thanking God, like a psycho, for finding the wallet, right? And when I hold the wallet up and I shake it, we have an apple tree. A kind of a, money, money falls out. No, we have a crab apple tree, and I hold up the wallet and I shake it, and apples fall out of the tree like it's God saying, "I got you," kind of thing. And um, abundance, abundance. And I go into the house and I tell Linda and Nora that story, and like Linda, like almost throws up into the garbage. She's so disgusted at my newfound spirituality. Um, but I think it's pretty cool. And then the next day, I wake up and I lost my wallet again. That sounds like you. So, I mean, the moral of that story is like, that's the other thing I've been thinking about is like every day I got to put in the work every day or like they, or like that saying is like, you can't stay clean on yesterday's shower. Like, it is like, I mean, you know, some days I feel good. Other days I'm fucking fearful, anxious, crazy, resentful, you know? So I got to put the work in every day to combat that and keep positive mental attitude see i think i think i'm so like all about dopey being some like entertainment show and some entertaining show and like crazy and funny and all this stuff that i forget that it was born out of like two addicts just trying to keep their shit together but i guess that's not true the show was designed to be a a clearinghouse of fucking ridiculous stories and then the recovery kind of filtered through right Mm mm-hmm but I always feel weird about talking about that shit on the show. Why? Because you think it's going to alienate people? Like, like Dopey Nation listeners won't want to listen? I just think it's not cool to talk about that stuff. You got to get over yourself. I don't know. You're probably... I mean, I think... I mean, I think, like I said, I think you've changed. I think it's who you are, who you're becoming. And most importantly, you should be authentic to that. No, I, I am. And, and this is and this is shit that you and I talk about, you know? Like, maybe you don't talk about this stuff with everyone, but you and I actually talk about it. So let's talk about it. And the other thing is it has become this major league tool, like, to deal with the day-to-day, to stay happy, joyous, and free. I just never thought that and I would... you're coming up on five years. Like, you're a few weeks away from five years, which is a big deal. Right. It's true. No, it's true. I just, you know, the whole thing is weird. That's all. And I'm sure like it does alienate people in the Dopey Nation. Dopey Nation, if you feel alienated from this discussion of spirituality, <laughs> please write an email fuck to off. dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Don't fuck off. Let us know. We need, we need to know. Don't you think we need to know? 
Rory? Yeah, I think you do. I think you do need to know. But like, what are you going to do then? Like, if somebody says I feel really alienated, like, great, read their email. But you're going to stop like talking about stuff you want to talk about? I just think it's a good. It's a good topic. I think it's interesting. Where you know, like my I dad. Think, I think when you and Chris talked about it, like, did you doubt as much or? No, because do you think I. Some I, of the pressure is that you're doing the show alone, and like, that's part of it. Definitely. I think Chris was happy to be spiritual and I was happy to burst his spiritual bubble, you know? Wow. Yeah. I think, I think I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm a little uncomfortable to talk about it. Like my dad listened to our last Patreon episode where we had a guy on who was a devout Christian in seminary school and he wound, his name is Dan, by the way, and he wound up, uh, his wife cheated on him and uh, he gave up God and started drinking. And then when he got sober, he tried to reclaim God, but he never did. So like he got sober without God and my dad came over and he's like, I've got news for you, David. There is no God. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty great. Now, why don't you... I mean, well, you know, another, another thing is like, you know, I think it's... I've been reading with my sponsee a bunch of the big book and we've been reading the spiritual experience and the appendix in the back and like, you know, that this idea of a higher power is this inner resource that we now have, you know? And I feel like for me, like, you know, I can trip out about what God is or what I think God is or if I believe in a God, but I definitely for sure know that since getting sober, I have an inner resource before or now that I didn't have before. And that can, that for me can be a higher power. I love that. I mean, that's the point. The point is not that there's some dude in a chair that says, I like gay rights. I don't like Muslims. I like Jews. I don't like Hindus. The point is that there's a a universe bigger than us and and it exists within us and outside of us is the point. You know, I love that. Yes. Oh, come on, Aurora. Give me a break. I do. All right. Why don't you read, read the email, read the dopey email. No. I got to go. You got to get ready for the meeting and I got to pee. Plus, I want to talk about fitness before the email. What are you talking about? This is it, I do the show. You read the fucking email. What's your problem? But we got to go. You got to speak in 10 minutes. So let me get ready for it too. All right. And then we'll talk after. All right. All right. Good luck. Yo, that meeting was long, right, Aurora? Yeah. What is there? A fucking hour and a half? My God. Well, come on, let's show some serenity. It was an hour and 15 minutes, and I really brought God's message to the people of Strong Island. Oh, my God, those people were so Long Island. Yeah, yeah. It's Aurora Romy tough crowd, because she's used to very glamorous meetings, right, Aurora? Right, celebs. Well, what what did you think about my incredible message of strength and hope? Uh, It surprised me. Your your share surprised me, pleasantly surprised. It was good. What the fuck is what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> I, just, I haven't heard you speak since the ninety day meeting. It was like in that one in that share, you were still in junior high, like ten minutes in. <laughs> right, that's true. That's true. I I, I kept it moving. I, I actually I actually spoke at a meeting in March, and I did it like a la ninety days, and I just was like, and then I tried acid for the first time, and I got really scared, and the floor was moving, and then I took Xanax one day. Yeah, this one I, I kept it moving. I, I kept it very very twelve step. I thought it was okay. I don't that much. That, I don't feel a lot of shame. All right, listen. Read the fucking email. 
Let's spare. But I do like, but I really do like when people go. Like, I wanted to hear a little bit more of your like downfall with drugs. Yeah, you know, I, I think a fifteen minute time period, and they don't want to hear your story. <laughs> they want a topic. Like, what the hell? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, you had a good message. Yeah, a good message. Um. Can we talk about fitness? Read the fucking email. I swear to God, I'm going to reach through the phone and choke you out. <laughs> oh, my God. Are we recording? Yes, we're recording. Just read the goddamn fucking email. <laughs> oh, you're a fucking maniac. Oh, let me see. Okay, hang on, hang on. Mm. Okay, what do you want to say about fitness? Aurora's in her fucking razorback fitness outfit amongst the Goomba meeting. Like, my hair is like Ronald McDonald. I'm in a shirt that I've been wearing for three days. Aurora's got, like, three different straps interlocking. It seems very uncomfortable to wear these tight workout clothes, Rory. What's going on? Dude, this is my fucking, this is my Target tank top. I live in L.A. It's, like, 80 degrees out. It's like a hundred and it's a hundred and twenty degrees where I'm sitting. It's so fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, tell us about fitness. I'm about to instant. I mean, like what I said to Michael Chernow, I, I've done my fifty and a hundred for uh, since I did that interview. So I'm I'm back in. That's good. I mean, well, first of all, you know, resentment. Like I have been telling you for years that you need to like get find something that you love to do and do it. Because the highs are so good from exercise and it's so good for addicts' brains. Like all that dopamine and serotonin is just so good for us. I think it should be part of anybody in, in recovery, like movement for sure. Yeah, I'm about to but, take up running. I'm gonna I'm gonna take up running. I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna become a runner and then I'm gonna have Rich Roll on the podcast and then I'm gonna go on Rich Roll's podcast because I will have found Ultra in a new plant based lifestyle. That is what's coming I up. Love it. What do you think? I love it. You know what? I do think though that the thing that you've always had your whole life is you're a walker. You love to walk. And you always walk, you walk consistently and you walk long distances. And I think that's something that'll serve you the rest of your life. Cause like walking is something you can always do. It's really good for you. Uh, you can always do it like as you age too. I think it's great. No, I, I live for walking. I think, and I walk and I walk and I talk and anybody that knows me knows that I, I often will call them on long walks as yeah. you know. Um, what's up, I, what's your fitness thing, regime? But I think the thing that's different, though, about doing something that's, like, highly aerobic, whether it's, like, hit training or running or swimming or biking or, you know, whatever, is, like, getting your heart rate up into that super high zone. Like, that releases the good drugs in your brain right. that addicts, I think, really, like, it, it's just so good for us. It just, it it is, I mean, I, you know, it was pretty interesting to hear him say that like fitness comes before everything else in his life right yeah but that dude like got his body fat down to three percent or something crazy like it'll be a lot of work to get my body fat down to like 25 percent or something i mean listen i mean i consistently work out you know five days a week but you know i do i i look like medium shitty you know i work really hard to look like medium shitty you know <laughs> like we're not talking three percent body fat i know that but, chris when chris was alive 
he had a, a practice where he would get on the elliptical for like an hour. And what he would talk about was wanting to sweat, you know, and, and that's something that I never really did. Like I had some, there was something I used to do where I sweat. I can't even remember what it is. So like, I need to, I, I would like to get into that situation where I'm like sweating and, 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 and feel endorphins and all that stuff. Cause I, I don't remember the last time I had a practice that involved real sweat. I want you to try those. I sent you two workouts. I want you, I love going to the gym. Don't get me wrong. But like what this pandemic has shown me is like, I mean, I bought like gym level flooring, like a eight by six little patch that I put in the living room. And like, we've been working out here since March and it's, it's awesome. Like I'm not you can, doing it. I'm not doing that stuff. That looks crazy. That's you, that fancy pants circuit training. It. I'm going to go running. I'm going to go run to the water. I'm going to go run like a real person. I'm not LA fucking fitness, fucking Lycra spandex shit and dancing this in front of the TV. What, Give me a break. What happened to willingness? <laughs> I want you to try this fucking, it's boxing and like, it's push-ups as well. It's all shit that you can do. It's all stuff you can do body weight. And you will be fucking dripping sweat on the floor. Just try it. All right, I'll try it. I promise you I will try it. Now, could you please, for the love of Jesus in heaven, read the goddamn email? <laughs> I am going to bug your ass every day until you try it, and I need video proof. I'm not going to send you a video, but <laughs> if I will be honest. You know that I'll be honest. All right, let's see. Uh, okay. Long time listener, first time emailer. Hey Dave, I've been meaning to send this email for years. At this point, I am finally sitting down to do it. I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate you, the show, and everyone who can. Oh, wait to for it. a second. Wait for a second. Isn't it fucked up how big Dopey is to the Dopey Nation? And I go to a meeting like that, and nobody knows who I am. No, get over yourself. (laughs) Can you believe believe I'm walking down the street all over the place and nobody knows who I am? I mean, I thought it was like humility on your part that you didn't bring up Dopey. I was shocked. I was thinking about wearing a shirt and hat, but I figured that would be pushing it. Yeah, maybe just a hat. Anyway, keep going. Oh, just to hide my hair, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. right. About four years ago, I was pacing around in my Brooklyn apartment trying to find a new podcast. I have a huge family history of addiction. My uncle was murdered in South America because he was a Coke dealer. My grandpa was an alcoholic who drank until the day he died. And my aunt on the other side of my family is a lifelong alcoholic who's woken up and drank a fifth of vodka every day for the last few decades. Don't ask me how she's still alive. Her liver must be made out of steel. Pretty dark stuff for a waspy family who seems to have their shit together. Anyway, I've always had a fascination with addiction, both because of the effect it's had on my family and the fact that I recently realized I personally have a very problematic relationship with alcohol. I stopped drinking seven months ago and have not looked back since. I stumbled across Dopey, searching for addiction podcasts, and thought the logo was funny. I think you guys were on like episode three or something crazy early. Of course, I got immediately sucked in by the crazy dopey stories, your banter and shtick with Chris, the infamous fish tank bubble noise, and all the other little things that make dopey amazing. The lo-fi audio quality at the beginning honestly didn't bother me at all because it felt intimate and like I knew about something no one else did. I work in production. I like to think I have a good instinct for great stories and talent, and I knew you guys had it. I listened to the episode about Chris dying on my way back from a shoot, and the second you started talking, I knew what had happened, and I literally couldn't breathe. I was sitting by myself on this plane, and it hit me so hard right in the chest, like he was a close friend. 
I'm still so sorry for your loss, for Annie's loss, and for his family's loss. On a more positive note, I was bowled over when This American Life picked you guys up, and I'm happy that the show has grown in leaps and bounds with its audience and the Jokey Nation. I just wanted to say thank you and let you know how much the show resonates with people who may not be hardcore addicts, but have their own relationship with addiction. Sorry for the super long message, but stay strong. And of course, toodles for Chris, Sylvie. Beautiful email. Thank you, Sylvie. Isn't that beautiful, Aurora? Aurora, you worked in production and you didn't realize how good we were. Why didn't you sense the it, the it quality? <laughs> that was a very sweet email. It's super touching. Very touching email. Aurora, it's been a joy to have you back on the show. I could tell you just want to go on and on, right? You just want to keep going. All day. You were, you were a joy. No, I, need to go, I need to go and live my life. I need to take a walk. All right, great. Well, thank you, Aurora. Um, a joy, mm-hmm. I'll say it again, to have you on the show. Stay, Thanks, Davey. It's a pleasure. Um, <laughs> stay strong. Dopey Nation. Are you, want, you want to do the thing? At the end, you do the thing. Uh, stay strong, dopey nation. Me naste toodles. And fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had